0: Well, if you will turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we will be looking at verses 11 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 18. And before we do anything as important as read the Holy Word of God, let us ask for His blessing upon it. Gracious Father, Father, and author of this inspired word we ask that you would once again open our ears to hear it we ask lord that in this time you would hide me behind the cross fill me with your holy spirit and put the gospel upon my lips move and govern my tongue to speak the truth help us lord Help me as I preach on a subject that even I myself sometimes just do not fully understand. Help me as we try to unravel the depth of your atoning grace and to the power of your redemption. And God, we will never be able to fully do that. Yet I ask in this short time that you would give me clarity, that you would give me fluency and fervency, that you would also mortify any spirit of pride that the evil one would send to me. For though I am just here to be the messenger, to give your word, to proclaim it as you have called me to do, let not my own pride exalt me, but may you be exalted. May you be lifted on high. May everyone see Jesus this morning through this passage of scripture. We ask this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 18, and the word of God reads, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word is does indeed endure forever. Years ago my grandmother gave me a cross with the simple inscription written down the middle of it. Jesus died for our sins. What is interesting about this gift is you could give it to almost anyone with the within the various denominations of Christianity. My grandmother was Pentecostal, I'm Presbyterian, and I could even give it to any other Methodist, Baptist, and so forth. And that's because, as a whole, Christianity, traditional Christianity, that is, has affirmed that the death of Christ served as an atonement to reconcile God with sinful humanity. Only until recently has this been challenged, but we may argue whether or not such a person could be even rightfully called a Christian. Now, how Christians interpret that atonement varies from tradition to tradition. What do we mean when we say Jesus died for our sins? What did his death actually accomplish? And who was it accomplished for? It is a question that the author of Hebrews answers for us here within this passage. In summary, Jesus Christ, by right of his superior priesthood, Accomplished a legal perfection for his set apart people. Now, if you're familiar with Reformed theology and the doctrines of grace, you will recognize that this is, in essence, the definition for limited atonement, not limited in its effect, that is, but limited into its extent as to who it goes to. In fact, most Reformed theologians would prefer the term definite atonement to avoid the confusion. Now, the author of Hebrews is not writing to Christians who believed in an unlimited atonement, as in a universal spread, but was writing to Jewish Christians who had a very Jewish understanding of the atonement based on their interpretation of the Old Testament. And the Jewish Christians, the Jewish understanding of the atonement was actually very limited in every sense of the word, limited in who could offer it, limited in what it could accomplish, and certainly very limited in who it was for. In order for us to understand just how revolutionary it was to say that Jesus Christ offers an atonement for sinners, we must place ourselves here in the shoes of these Jewish Christians who didn't even really understand, perhaps, why exactly Jesus had to die. So we begin our study, and any study should begin on the atonement by looking at the superior priesthood of Christ. Now we don't often think about the priestly rites of Christ, but for the Jews this is a very big deal. According to most Jewish interpretations of the Old Testament, the Messiah could not even make an atonement for sin, because the Messiah was from the kingly line of Judah. But priests were from the line of Levi, specifically descendants of Aaron. In fact, we have an incident where a king, Saul, steps over the line and tries to make a sacrifice, and it ends up costing him his kingdom. So what is the author to do? Well, he is faced with finding a way to solve this dilemma, and so he finds it within a prophecy that David would make about his coming Messiah, that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not only does this bypass the legal requirements for Christ's priesthood, but it even makes Christ to be a superior priest than even Aaron himself. Aaron is from the line of Abraham, so therefore Abraham is his superior. But it was Melchizedek who had blessed Abraham in the very first place. Therefore, Melchizedek is Abraham's superior and superior to any offspring of his. Now, why is this important? Because the blessings of Melchizedek were permanent. We only hear about him one time in the book of Genesis in a short clip. But his blessing was permanent. But the blessings of the Aaronic priest were temporary. As we read in verse 11, it says that the priest had to stand daily at their office, offering the same sacrifices repeatedly. But Christ, under the order of Melchizedek, makes his sacrifice once and for all, and then is able to sit down at the right hand of God the Father forever and interceding on our behalf, as we read in verse 12. If Christ is a priest under Aaron, then we are still under the law. Charles Spurgeon has this to say about the contrast of the two orders. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins, he forever sat down at the right hand of God. Every priest under the old dispensation had to stand. But this man sat down, and the posture is in fact very instructive. The typical priest stood because there was still work to do. Still must they present their sacrifices. But our Lord sits down because there is no more sacrificial work to do. Atonement is complete. He has finished his task. Therefore, not only is Christ a superior priest, but he also makes a superior sacrifice. The Aaronic priest could only offer the blood of spotless lambs or animals and bulls, which the author states there again at the end of verse 11, that these could never take away sin. But Christ offers more than a lamb. He offers himself. The priests of the Old Testament could not do that. They could not offer themselves because they were sinful and thus did not meet the demands of being a spotless sacrifice. They were also finite. They had a beginning. They had an end and so could not make a sacrifice that would have an infinite or an endless effect. But Christ, on the other hand, lived his life as a perfect, spotless man. And because he is also an infinite God, his sacrifice alone "...bears an infinite effect. That is why, under the New Testament, there is no room for another priesthood like the Roman Catholics suggest. We have but one high priest who lives forever, and therefore needs no vicar, no substitute here on earth to make sacrifices for him." When we have a time of confession of sin, we do not need to go individually to the minister, the priest, confess our sins to him and ask for him to pray for us and absolve us. We can go directly to God himself under this new covenant. We who are believers are made priests and we ourselves can come before God and ask for absolution of our sins. So now that we see what Christ, how Christ could accomplish atonement for sins, we have to look at what exactly he did accomplish, which was a legal perfection. Now what do we mean by legal perfection? Well, let me ask you this question. Have any of you been perfect since you have come to faith in Christ? If you said yes, well, you just committed a sin of lying course not because scripture and even our own conscience testifies that we will struggle with sin and will continue to do so until the Lord calls us home into glorification. Yet the author explicitly states there in verse 14, let's read it again, for by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what could that mean if we do not, in fact, live morally perfect lives after being saved? The only thing that it could mean is that by the sacrifice of Christ, we are declared legally perfect. The only way this could be accomplished is for the atonement to have been a legal transaction. We are sinners and have broken God's law. A just judge cannot simply overlook that law. Even if it was the judge's own son and he loved him dearly, he is bound by duty to uphold the law. And so we cannot be simply forgiven as some are claiming now. But God is just and requires that a penalty must be paid Justice must be served. He is completely justice and completely grace. Not one is higher than the other, but both are spewed in the same category. And the penalty for sin is death, which includes not only a physical death, but a spiritual separation from God for all eternity. Because the Bible says that he, God, cannot even be In the presence of sin. Now Christ is God the Son. But in order to save man, he had to take on man's flesh, man's nature. And unlike us, he lives a perfect, sinless life, fulfilling all of the law. And at the cross, he is presented as the ultimate sacrifice. The perfect for the imperfect. At the cross, Christ pays for sin both physically and spiritually. I used to be a fan of the movie Passion of the Christ. Don't tell Andy because I know he doesn't like that movie. But again, I used to be a fan of that movie because I believed that by seeing the physical suffering of Christ, I would develop a deeper appreciation of what he did. Now, I'm not saying that what Christ suffered physically was any small feat. What he did and endured is rightfully regarded as one of the cruelest forms of execution. But many of his disciples will face a very similar form of execution. Many of them will be crucified. Yet before they face it, we find them rejoicing and praising God that they get to die in a like manner as their Savior. Yet before Christ has his execution, we are seeing him having a moment of crisis where he is weeping to the point of sweating drops of blood. He is pleading with the Father to find another way, begging him to take away the cup that is before him. Why? Because that cup was filled with God's holy wrath of sinners. The most painful moment that Christ endured in his passion was not the scourging of the nine tails, the betrayal of his friends, or even the piercing of nails and the thorns. It was the moment when he who knew no sin became sin for us. And in his marvelous mystery, I cannot understand his own father could not even bear to look at him at the moment and that is why in the climax of his agony Christ cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me because he had indeed been forsaken on behalf of his people you who are believers especially know just how awful the weight of guilt feels. You know just how terrible the thought of judgment seems. Now imagine having all the guilt, all the judgment of every Christian to ever live, millions to probably billions of people, placed upon your shoulders, and then having to stand before God. That is the penalty that Jesus Christ paid. John Calvin, in his explanation of the Apostles' Creed, says that this is what we mean when we say Christ descended into hell. He writes, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. No, it was expedient at the same time for him to undergo the severity of Of God's vengeance to appease his wrath and satisfy his just judgment in order that we might know not only that Christ's body was given as the price of our redemption but that he paid a greater and more excellent price in suffering in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man at the cross the sinful record of all believers is placed upon Christ, and when He calls to them, calls them to himself, he applies to them his sinless record. Think about that for a moment. I had someone ask me recently at work what it will look like when we stand before God in judgment. And I answered that at the Great White Throne there will be many books that are opened, and the most important and central book will be the Lamb's book of life. And every name that is written will not have a sinful record shown, but the sinless record of Christ will show in its place. Verse 17 testifies that their lawless deeds will be remembered no more. They will be blotted out by the memory of Christ's righteousness beloved let us never grow callous to the beauty of that grace that we have in christ's atonement because despite all of our sins all of our wickedness all the things we have done past present and future we need not fear the judgment for in christ our lawless deeds are remembered no more guilty vile and helpless we Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. To further illustrate what it will look like for those who have received atonement on judgment day, there is no better picture than the Passover. Jesus himself testifies to that by choosing to give his life during that very festival. The Passover was celebrated To commemorate the events in Exodus 12, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt were commanded to put blood over their doors so that when the avenging angel came through, he would pass by their homes. But for the homes without the blood, the firstborn child would be taken. Now think about the faithfulness of Israel for a minute. Many people with blood on their doors were not faithful. They would be found later on worshiping golden calves, rebelling against God time and time again. Yet does the avenging angel go knocking on the doors with blood and saying, Will you be faithful? Are you among the faithful? No. He sees the blood, and it's enough. He moves on. He continues on with his mission. Beloved, to stand before God in judgment, having faith in Jesus Christ is the same as having that blood on your door. When the judge sees that blood, he will move on. To him, it will be enough. But just as there were those in Egypt who did not have that blood upon their door, to whom the avenging angel did come and take the life of the firstborn, so will be there those that stand before God at judgment, whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life. Instead, another book will be opened, and it will contain the record of every sinful thought, word, or deed committed by that person. And without the blood of Christ covering them, they shall be left to answer for their crimes, paying an infinite penalty for sinning and rebelling against an infinite God this is the consequence excuse me this is the consequence of the atonement is that not everyone is going to receive it and so now that we have looked at what the atonement has done we must look at who the atonement is for his set apart people at the end of verse 14, we read that his single sacrifice has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, literally, to sanctify something means to make it holy, and to be holy literally means to just set it apart from the common. If we truly believe that Christ's sacrifice has legally perfected those who it atones then we must say that this only applies to a certain group of people. Otherwise, if this was done for everyone, if everyone is declared legally perfect, that could only mean one of two things. Either one, everyone is saved as universalists believe. Or Perhaps a worse situation is that there are people in hell who have been declared legally perfect. In that case, God would have been guilty of double jeopardy, charging a penalty twice. And verse 18 makes it very clear that God would indeed consider that a great act of injustice, for where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Nothing more needs to be paid. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, to imagine that Christ was the substitute for all the sons of men and that god having first punished the substitute would afterwards punish the sinner themselves seems to conflict with all my ideas of divine judgment now some would argue christ has paid for all sins of all men but only those who believe in him will be saved and who have that will receive the benefit of that atonement yet john owen in his legendary argument responds in this fashion Either A, Christ has died for all sins of all men. B, Christ has died for all sins of some men. Or C, Christ has died for some sins of all men. Now if C is true, that Christ has died for some sins of all men, there are some sins left to answer for and no one is really saved by the work of Christ. If A is true, that Christ died for all sins of all men, why are not all men saved? You answer, because of unbelief. Well, I ask, isn't unbelief a sin? Is it not a breaking of the very first commandment? And if so, and, Christ, and it hinders them from entering into heaven, then Christ has not paid for all sins. So in order for us to say rightfully that the payment of Christ was indeed a full payment, we must conclude that it was not done for equally for every single person, else everyone would be saved. Rather, we must believe, B, Christ has died for all sins of his chosen people. Now it is important that we clarify who these set-apart people are. Verse 15 through 16 makes that clear unto us. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Therefore, those who have a sanctified record by the atonement of Christ will have a sanctified conscience by the regeneration of the holy spirit in other words only those who are born who are born again believers who manifest themselves as such by resting in the grace of god alone and repenting of their sinful ways and mortifying their sin are the ones who are rightfully considered atone the westminster shorter catechism states We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ, by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. The Spirit applies to us redemption purchased by Christ, by working faith in us, and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. To say that Christ has died for His elect is the same as saying that He has died for believers. He he who does not believe in the name of Christ should not have any hope for salvation until he comes to the foot of the cross begging for mercy. Likewise, he who shows himself to be a believer should in no wise doubt whether or not he could somehow sin outside the atonement, but have a certainty unlike never before that his sins are paid for. Before I even came to accept this doctrine of the atonement, I struggled daily with a fear of somehow losing my salvation. Will I sin so much today or even in 20 years or so, yet now I see that a single sacrifice has perfected for all time my record. On the day of my judgment, I can rest confidently knowing that it is the record of Christ that shall be read in my place. All sins, past, present, and future, will have been expunged by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now how can I sit there and just say that He is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world while also saying that He only takes away the sins of His people alone? How can both be true at the same time? Well, the answer lies within how the biblical authors define the world world, in fact, specifically how the Jews defined it. Recall when I said that the Jews' belief in atonement was limited in every way, including its extent. That's because the Jews believed that atonement could be only made for the physical nation of Israel. Think about the priests of the Old Testament. They did not make sacrifices for the Canaanites the Amorites, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, Romans, barbarians, no matter who they were, all atonement was for the physical people of Israel. And even if the Messiah was going to come and save, he was only going to come and save the Jews. Perhaps he was going to convert some Gentiles to Judaism in the process, but they would have had to become Jews and under the law nonetheless. So when Christ declared that he was indeed coming to save the world, they were indeed shocked. Not because they believed he was saying he was coming to save everyone, but they knew what he was saying, that he has come to save people from everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike. John, in the book of Revelation, gives us an understanding of what we mean by the world, that God will have a multitude, innumerable to count, From every tribe, tongue, and nation. Again, this is a big deal for them, not just of racial significance, but of moral significance. I mean, the Jews were people who had grew up under the law, they were refined, morally superior to every other nation. Just read some history of what's going on during these times, and you will see just how God's people, the Jews, were just in every sense of the word morally superior. And yet God is declaring to have elected Gentiles who have a reputation for being vile, ruthless pagans, who lived in unbridled sexual immorality, who lived in gross idolatry. And yes, he is saying, I have elected some from among them. In fact, a multitude that no one can count and I have procured an atonement for them. Christ is declaring he has come to atone and call out from among the liberal Samaritan half-breeds who only accepted portions of Scripture. He is coming to call out the tyrannical Romans who was oppressing his people with unjust taxes. He was coming to call out perverted Greeks who lived each day just in complete foolishness and just debauchery. And yes, he even calls out the savage barbarians, many of whom are our actual ancestors, who were just violent and cavemen and brutes in every sense of the word. When what scripture declares by saying that Christ is a ransom paid for all, he is saying that Christ is a ransom for all kinds of sinner. We ourselves need to be reminded of that. Because many of us here grew up in in the Bible Belt in a conservative Christian home. And we look to a nation that grows increasingly pagan by the hour. But we can forget that Christ has elected some of them. We can forget that Christ has a people among them that we need to go out and declare the gospel and bring them to. And that he has made an atonement for them. Among atheists among homosexuals, among drug addicts, gangsters, yes, even terrorists. God has elected a people for himself, procuring atonement for them, waiting for his church to go out to bring those sheep in to the flock whom he has died for. And these heathens will be grafted into the sanctified people at the time that they come to faith. Therefore, let none of us say that this doctrine of particular redemption hinders us from sharing the gospel. Rather, let us go to the very least of these, to the very worst of sinners, and proclaim this gospel unto them, that Christ has died for sinners, and all who come to him in faith believing will receive full pardon for their crimes." There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. My question for you, beloved, is this. Have you been washed and the fountain of that perfecting blood? Are you among the set-apart people who have received legal perfection from the only perfect high priest, Jesus Christ? If you have rested in the promises of his grace, then you may leave with a certain assurance that though your sins be like scarlet, he has made you white as snow, though you are crimson. He has cleansed you and made you whole. Take confidence in the fact that by a single sacrifice, Christ has perfected you for all time. As Martin Luther says, is my favorite quote when the devil throws your sin in your face and tells you that you deserve death and hell, tell him, Yes, I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I have one who has made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ. Where he is, there I will be also. But if you do not believe this morning, may not my words discourage you, but send you running towards the fountain of living water. Know that there is not a glimmer of hope for salvation outside the atonement of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in faith... Cast the blood of the slam of God upon your door. Do it now before the angel of death comes to execute his judgment. Do not delay any longer, for you know not the day nor the hour when the Lord shall call upon you to give an account for your sins. To remain in that state, as Jonathan Edwards famously puts it, is like living like a spider being held by a string over an open flame. Therefore, again, I plead with you. Repent and turn to Christ so that his sinless record shall be read in the place of your tarnished record. And for those of you who are overwhelmed, especially with the weight of your guilt, I implore you, carry not this burden anymore, but cast it down at the foot of the cross. Let him who is thirsty come. Come. And whosoever will, let him take from the water of life freely. Let's pray. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, this marvelous mystery of your redemption, how can we understand it? How can we begin to even really know what you have fully done, but at the same time, how can we even understand why you did it? Why did my sovereign bleed and Savior die for such a worm as I? Why, what is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of him? That you would come among us from your throne of heaven, from being surrounded by cherubim and seraphim, to take on human flesh, human soul and then be persecuted to suffer and to die as a condemned man, despite all of your innocence for us. Father, I pray that everyone in this room will be quickened by those words, that for every believer, myself included, that you would nourish me by that statement, that you have died for our sins. I pray for everyone struggling in faith, struggling, Lord, thinking that they must somehow earn their salvation, must somehow come to you through their own works and deeds. I pray that they would just cast that to the cross, that they would come to you seeing how perfect your atonement offers, that they would look to you who is the author and finisher of our faith. We ask that as we close in this time of worship, that you would be with us as we go about our Sunday schools and again throughout the rest of the day, Lord, that you would have us meditating upon the perfection that you have accomplished for us. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.